Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Join Mason and Jake each week as they try new wines and discover how much government is in your drink. Welcome to another fantastic episode of Tasting Anarchy. I'm your host, Jacob Lindsay, and as always, I'm joined by... Mason Joseph. And uh, I've got a very well-prepared episode this week that I prepared last week, but... I. Uh, Mason wasn't able to make it. I was and, sick. Um, oh, was yeah, you were sick. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Uh, but you know what I didn't prepare this week was a review for my wine. Mm. I, I honestly, I couldn't tell you what I'm drinking. It's a Cab Sauv. It's pretty good, but I didn't take a picture of the label. I didn't write down the name or anything like that. Uh, it's just one of the bottles from my stash. Mm-hmm. It could be a $20 bottle. It could be a $50 or $60 bottle. I don't know. I would, I'd hazard a guess that it's closer to the higher end because it is very good. But you know what? Sometimes you can get a $20 or $30 bottle and it's just as good as a $50 or $60 bottle. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe next time I'll, I'll remember to write down what I'm drinking instead <laughs> of just uh, reviewing my notes and stuff. Um, yeah. But uh, earlier today, I informed you of what our wine grape of the week was going to be. Mm-hmm. Did that factor at all into your decision of uh, what you're sipping on tonight? Not technically. Um, so as you know, like I go to the grocery store on Saturdays um, and I usually go to the grocery store, you know, nine, 10 o'clock. So that's, you know, an hour behind for you. So I, instead of like getting the list and, you know, being responsible and looking it up ahead of time to see if like I have a wine for this or not, like I usually just text you and kind of like, oh, what are we doing? And then if you're awake and respond, then, you know, try to line it up from there. Mm -hmm. So, but you know me, a good deal is a good deal. So (laughs) we were over at the Kroger and uh, they had a, uh, they had wine actually in the, um, like in the, uh, like discount area. And there was a Malbec yeah. there that was from like the Andes and I really wanted to get it, but like it what didn't have a listed discount price. So that could have been a $70 bottle of wine that somebody just brought over there. Or that could have been like an incredibly dirt cheap bottle of wine. And like, I didn't feel like doing any research. Um, okay. And, you know, we were already buying like a whole bunch of stuff for dinner. Like we're doing gumbo this week. So we were getting shrimp and then we impulse bought steak. So, you know, we already knew the grocery bill was going to be kind of high. So what I did find is they had a French cider. So cider Cape Cavill um, is the cider that I got. So it's a product of France. It's like 4% alcohol by volume. It was like, you know, 35 centiliters or something like that. Like it, it wasn't, wasn't very big. Um, I can't really find anything about it online, but Mm -hmm. it is one of the best ciders I've ever had. Like, and it's very different. Like it's, it's like a haze. It looks like a beer kind of. Okay. It's hazy. Um, but like Amber, like an Amber haze, but like the smell there is apple in there, but it's more pearish. It tastes a lot like pear. I'm pretty sure it's an apple cider. Like I, you know, I didn't see anything on there that made me think it's a pear cider or anything like that. But like uh-huh. my wife describes it as like a, the final blanket on a cold evening, like just getting nice and warm. Like it was fantastic. It's like 4% alcohol by volume. Like it just was 
sweet without being like nauseatingly sweet. Like it didn't have like a strong aftertaste. It's kind of like, like online I saw somebody said it was a brute. It actually had like a cork in it, but like the, it was funny because like the, you know, it had like more like the champagne cork, uh-huh. but like the cork didn't go very far into the stem. It didn't flare out again. So like, I don't know what the point was. <laughs> Um, what was it? What how, was it like held down by a, uh, yeah, the wire cage, those, like wires. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I, mean, I guess that's, I guess that's some sort of a, uh, oxygen barrier. Yeah. So, I mean, it was like six bucks, what it was supposed to be originally. And I got it for like $3. Like, honestly, if you like, I w- if they had more, I'd buy like as many of them as I could get my hands on from them. Like I'd probably buy 10 or 12 of them. They were just fantastic. And then send you a couple, they just, wasn't so sweet where you're just like this is gross but it was sweet in that like fruit sweet but like a sweet apple um but had notes of pear like it's so hard to describe but it was so good and that was was really interesting to me because it was you know i was like okay like i don't you know like you think cider like i don't really think french like you know what i mean like that's just not wasn't there didn't we at some point have a belgian cider you and i, I together so. that was like i could be thinking of the wrong thing but i if as i recall like the story of that one was it was like a school teacher who got into brewing and made a cider but i could i could be also thinking of like a saison yeah i won't sort of, like a I belgian saison yeah i won't say you're wrong but like I, that doesn't come to my mind but like okay yeah it was just fantastic and it was super small because like so last night my uh, neighbors had a party um they had friends in town and then they had friends in town and then some of their local friends had family in town so it was like okay friends on top of friends on top of friends so like we went over there and like i was over there until like midnight like i had food until like food and drink until like nine something and you know normally i'm done by seven um yeah so I didn't get like I drank a whole bottle of Sauvignon Blanc that I brought over that I was going to review on the show today, um, just because I had it in the closet. Ashley said it like smelled like rotted meat. Like I thought it just tasted like Sauvignon Blanc. It smelled like Sauvignon Blanc. So like, <laughs> yeah, your wife, your wife is more sensitive to uh, yeah the smell. Like my to, yeah my smell sense of smell is terrible. But like it was a good bottle of wine. But like I drank the whole bottle of wine and like. And it feel really buzzed. So like I had a couple of beers over there and then just hung out with them. So like I'm super tired, but yeah, yeah. I wasn't like super hungover or anything like that. And so I was like, okay, I'm not going to open another bottle of wine and, you know, go or go get like a Merlot. Like I'm going to, I've got this little French thing. I'm going to try it. And it just, it hit the spot perfectly. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I actually took a, a long break this week from drinking altogether uh, I didn't drink the night you and I were supposed to record last week, and I didn't have mm-hmm. anything to drink until Friday. And then I had one glass of wine on Friday night. I finished that bottle during the day Saturday as like I worked in the garage and because uh, I was cleaning the garage, as I mentioned to you earlier. Mm-hmm. And so like I came in for lunch, had a glass of wine with lunch, and then later on had another glass of wine. So I basically finished that bottle Saturday. And then I opened this Cab Sauv today and had a glass uh, earlier and then probably with, with dinner, but we ate dinner at like three cause I went to this Lebanese place down the street mm-hmm. and, uh, and you know, I like Lebanese food a lot. And, yeah. um, so I had a glass of wine 
actually it was after that, but it was like right after that. And I, cause I came to kind of relax for a few minutes before I went back to doing other stuff. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, um, I guess shout out to Mark Claire. He's got a new podcast about comic books that you told me about. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I hadn't gotten around to listening to it. And then he and I had a conversation briefly online and, uh, and I was reminded of it. And so I went and binged, you know, the first, I think they've got three episodes out, but I, I had already told him I'd, um, Patreon his, whatever his next project was. So I Patreon that and it gave me access to the next two or three episodes. And so I've been binging that all day. Nice. But yeah, so I felt good. I felt good taking, kind of taking a break. Mm-hmm. I, I did I think I would think. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's good to take a break for a little while once in a while, especially like for when you, when you're starting to go through like three or four bottles a week, it's a little, especially a lot of the higher alcohol wine mm-hmm. or, uh, it's kind of the same thing with like craft brews is yeah. a lot of times they're not quite as refined. And so when you're going through like a lot of like lo- local wine, I guess is the best way to describe it. Um, it, there's something about it that just gives you a worse hangover. Even if you're not getting like sloshed, mm-hmm. it just doesn't, it just doesn't process well. So like I had had several bottles of Texas wine, uh, which was not, some of it was, was on the higher quality and some of it was not, but I, it just, you know, for whatever reason, also Texas wines tend to be close to 16 or 17% ABV. Mm-hmm. So it's more alcohol and, and less refined typically. And, uh, so I was just not feeling great. And I was like, you know what? I think it's, I think I'm just drinking too much. Yeah. That's yeah. kind of the, the thing I ran into. It's just like my overall consumption of stuff, like food, drink, like was, it's just been up compared to where I want it to be. Um, so I'm just like, uh, I'm going to, going to kind of cut back on this. <laughs> yeah, I think it's and I think it's a good thing to do every once in a while. Plus it's also like when you're drinking that much too and you're not savoring it as much as you maybe should. And and also I think it blows your palate a little bit. Mhm. Like cuz you start you, you just start going like just, you know, I wouldn't say chugging cuz I never really chugged it, but like you're just drinking so much that it just sort of starts blending together in your mind like what is what and and you and you kind of forget what what you were drinking here and what you were drinking there. And, uh, you know, what I had, what I broke my wine fast with was one of my favorite Cabernet Francs, uh, which will lead us into our next topic, even though the grape is not Cabernet Franc, but it is related. <laughs> um, that, uh, Loire Cabernet Franc from, uh, uh, is it Chinon? I don't remember, but it's, uh, or not Luray, Loire. I always say Luray, but uh, the Loire Cab Franc that I really liked. They actually they have it at at Total Wine, and it's cheap. It's like sixteen bucks a bottle, and I think it's really good. It's just it's just very well refined, and if it's just slightly chilled, it's even better. So yeah, that's why I broke it with, and and it was very good, and I was very happy to to drink it. And and it was kind of because I knew I was trying to only have one or two glasses, uh, in a go, like savoring it a little bit more and like thinking about it and tasting it and stuff. It's a little better. So that's, I guess my recommendation to the listeners is if you're drinking a lot, you know, take a break once in a while or just take, take some time to make sure that you savor what you're drinking so that you can kind of appreciate the flavor and the craft that goes into it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, like yeah. to kind of help you not detox isn't the word that I would use, but like just kind of, uh, like it, it's hard to describe, but it's like you, you just kind of let stuff process out. 
not like yeah, a cleanse yeah, or so. something like that, but like you don't need to be pushing it that hard. Yeah, exactly. Like it's but and I think it's I think also for a lot of people, maybe not for you, you're still going to work, but for like for me, I'm working from home. So uh after lunch, you know, you I can have a glass of wine or a beer or whatever and still work for the next four or five hours. Mm-hmm. And and so it's easy to get started earlier when you're working from home because of the whole lockdown thing. And um, it's easier to get started early. And then it's once you're started, it's kind of easy to keep going. So it's just one of those things where it's be a little more cognizant. I think listeners, if you're stuck at home listening or whatever, because it's something you got to sort of have to reflect on a little bit because when thing, when your like daily routines change as much as they have in the last couple of months for a lot of people, mm-hmm. uh, you just kind of have to be aware of it. Yeah. It's just, just one of like, those kind of things. Yeah. Just pull back a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so as I was saying, Cabernet Franc, it's related to this. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's get into our grape of the week, which is, I don't remember which number this is, but it's Merlot because we did skip one. I think this would be th- the third most popular grape because mm-hmm. uh, we did skip down to a lower level to Zinfandel last time. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I guess it'll be two times ago for uh, listeners, but uh, we went to Zinfandel. And uh, now we're on Merlot, which is actually third. So we're going back up on our list. And I will go ahead and give a summary of the grape. So uh, actually, before we go into that, what, what is your general thought on Merlot? Merlot is one of those wines that it's like Malbec. I do enjoy it, um, mm-hmm. but I often can kind of sense that there's more going on than what I'm picking up. Um, so for me, a lot of the times it's like, I don't go out of my way to get it. Um, yeah. Okay. And you know, I know if I drink more of it, like I'd probably pick up more on it, but like, you know, for me, like I could just get a cab franc or, you know, some other red, like, you know, Tempranillo or Grenache that I enjoy more and I get more out of easier. And like, I wouldn't say no. Like, that's the thing is like, if it's like, Oh, like you, we only got Merlot. It's like, okay, I will certainly have a glass of Merlot. So. Well, and and it's, you know, what's interesting about Merlot and this is something that, um, I think, Jared and uh, Will brought up to us when we've had crossovers with them from the Peaceful Treason podcast is like their opinion of Merlot is that it's like lower. And I never really had that opinion. But in doing some research, I I came across some interesting things about how like people's perception of Merlot changed. Because of Um, Sideways? (laughs) Because of Sideways, exactly. Because of that movie. So there was in the 90s, there was a perception shift of Merlot. And I never had that because, you know, Sideways is not really part of my... um, well, actually, I guess Sideways was like a 2004 movie, which where it shifted it. But, but there is a reason why that opinion was around in 2004, mm-hmm. and uh, and I'll get into that a little bit. Like my opinion, though, of Merlot has always been that it's more along the Pinot Noir side of red wines. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe not as refined as Pinot Noir, but more delicate, a little bit lighter, and uh, needs to be usually needs to be with food and kind of. Uh, needs to be thought about differently, mm-hmm. but that was just kind of my experience with it. Uh, but it's, you know, it's very widely available and it is a, and you can get bottles of Merlot for incredibly inexpensive. And it's also a very wide ranging grape. So it can be very different depending on where it's from. Same as all wine, but this in particular, it can be very low quality or it can be very high quality. 
and uh, and it also is a bit of a chameleon. So it kind of is, it's hard sometimes to tell. And mm-hmm. I'll get into a little bit of why that is the case. So, uh, so here's my notes on it. So Merlot is from France, of course. Uh, it is a child of Cab Franc and Magdalene Magdalene Noir des Charentes, which I wish I could pronounce that better, <laughs> but um, it is a difficult thing to pronounce. So, what's interesting about the parentage of Merlot is this makes it a sibling of Cabernet Sauvignon and a sibling of Malbec. Hmm. Uh, so with Cabernet Sauvignon, it's related on the Cab Franc side. And with Malbec, it's on the Magdalene Noir side, uh, which mm-hmm. I'm not going to go into the rest of how to pronounce that. But uh, so I think that's kind of interesting that it and a lot of people uh, do often mistake it for Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, and it can be very similar depending on where it's from. Mm hmm. Uh, so in places like, uh, well, in general, it, it tends to have softer tannins and more fruit flavor from the, what they would say is the blue fruit spectrum. And I don't know why they say blue fruit when like, there's not many blue fruits and they're talking about blueberries specifically, but that's kind of what the notes say. say. It's like, is, there's only, there's, there's only one blue fruit. Yeah. That is, as far as I know, there's only one it's blueberry, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, for whatever reason, they describe it as the blue fruit spectrum. Um, th- what they mean is that it tastes more like blueberry. That, funny. <laughs> What's the, that? The blue fruit. <laughs> you're saying it very like French to me. I love it. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, it, it is. For whatever reason, they that's how they're describing it. It must be just a, a, a French thing. I don't know. But uh, also, it tends to have more chocolate notes to it than Cabernet Sauvignon. And that's kind of how people differentiate them. Uh, but de- like I said, depending on where it's from, it can be much more similar to Cabernet Sauvignon and uh, people do confuse it quite a bit. Um, so uh, Merlot is actually the most planted grape in Bordeaux. And uh, at one point they actually had to put, pass some laws not to plant more of it because it was, there was so much of it, um, <laughs> which, you know, one of those weird wine things, but uh, yeah, yeah. especially French wine things where they're like, Oh, we need a whole bunch of laws to stop people from growing this because it grows too well. But um it, they were, it was, it was affecting what Bordeaux was, I guess, because they were, there was so much Merlot and things, uh, because it grows into a similar climate, uh, as Bordeaux and, you know, the other noble grapes, uh, it is, uh, very widely planted around the world. So it grows pretty much everywhere Cabernet Sauvignon grows. So it's usually planted in those same places and, uh, same thing, same thing with Malbec, which is, uh, one of the noble grapes and, um, Cabernet Franc, which is Cabernet Franc's a little bit more particular where it grows, but it mm-hmm. does pretty much grow in a lot of these places as well. And I feel like I'm missing one, but a uh, oh, Petit Verdot, I think, is the other one that I'm missing. So it, it does tend to be grown in the same places as the as the um, the what they call the noble grapes, and uh, and that's one of them, um, or that's one of the reasons why it's so widely planted. Uh, the last note I have is uh, about what we were talking about earlier. So Merlot suffers a poor public image due to California's production in the 1990s. So in the 1990s, they produced ridiculous amounts of Merlot. And uh, also in, in Texas, they, gr- they grew quite a bit of it. Uh, so they still grow quite a bit of it here now. But a lot of it was very low quality. They were using using it to bulk out um, bulk wines like um, – well, this was the '90s. I don't know if Franzia was around back then, but like things like Franzia, like the what's those big ones that come around out? then? 
Was it? Okay. What, yeah. What's the what's the big one that's in like the big glass jug? What's that called? Oh, I don't know so off pretty, the top of my head, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah it's popular. It's, it's been popular for years and years, but uh, they would usually use it to kind of fill those out. So it kind of got a, a bad rap. Uh, because of what was going on in California. And then, uh, like we said, Peaceful Treason kind of pointed this out. When Sideways came out in 20, uh, 2004, that movie had so much impact on the wine industry in the United States that Merlot sales dropped by 2% and Pinot Noir sales increased by 16%, <laughs> which is like, it's pretty incredible that a movie had yeah. that much impact. Uh, and I, I think that's really, that's very funny because that was like the one thing that they knew when we first were talking about wine with them was sideways. And I have never seen that movie still. It's mm-hmm. one of those things that you and I should watch it. And uh, have you seen it? I have seen, I haven't seen the entire movie, but I've seen like most of the movie. Like, okay. My wife is like, it's a book too. Like it's based on oh, a book. It? Yeah. Okay. And like my wife loves the movie and I, think we have it on dvd huh like <laughs> yeah i mean i've n- I've never seen it i've never i know who's in it just because uh-huh. i've seen clips i think of it but i've i've never seen the movie and so it really wasn't never impacted me on my opinion of merlot uh, or or uh pinot noir both both merlot and pinot noir are not the ones i drink like often they're just not mm-hmm. they're they're I, I would say they're less to me less accessible in flavor um I do really like Pinot Noir and under the right circumstances, Pinot Noir is excellent. Same thing with Merlot. I think Merlot is very, very good under the right mm-hmm. circumstances. And one in, in, in particular, um, Rowdy Bolin from Bolin Vineyards, he grows Merlot and his Merlot is fantastic, but it's, it's very different. It's not, it's, it's not delicate and subtle and all that sort of stuff, which I've had those, those Merlots, but, uh, his is much more bold, much more in your face, very high brick, um, goes great with barbecue. It's got a powerful enough flavor to eat with the things that I typically eat, things that are spicier mm-hmm. uh, or have more more flavor, more fatty, like that kind of stuff. Uh, and, and actually, and Pinot Noir does too, but Pinot Noir typically goes better with like soft cheeses, salami, uh, cold cut type things. Uh, it also goes well with certain types of fish, but you know, I don't eat fish. Uh, Merlot, same thing. Merlot can go well with fish, but Merlot, you know, done in, in different styles can go with a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and you know, the old, what grows together goes together. Uh, all of these are going to go kind of well with, uh, the type of French cuisine and the f- spice and flavor profile of those regions. So Pinot Noir is, is Burgundian. I think, I think it's Burgundian in nature, like or in origin, uh, I could be mistaken if I, I don't know, but uh, Merlot is from the Bordeaux region or somewhere near there. And it's going to go with those types of food. And Bordeaux does tend to have a little bit heavier foods, um, like more lamb and fattier things, but also has, you know, it's typ- a lot of typically French stuff. So from the perspective of fast food eating Americans, lighter fare. So, <laughs> uh, but from, I think probably from, some European standards, maybe not British standards, but from mainland European standards, a little bit heavier fare, I guess. I'm not, I'm not sure how to classify that. I'm not, I'm not super familiar with all of Europe's food. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm yeah. very, I, we're very, I'm very familiar with like typical specific country European foods, but you know, France is the size of Texas roughly, or mm-hmm. I think it's a little bit smaller, but it's a big country. So they've got, and they've, and it's a very diverse country as well. They've got a lot of different cultures there with a lot of different cuisines and a lot of different wine. Yeah. So, 
So, that's anyways, like that's it, uh, no, what's that? Uh, no, uh, nothing. Oh, I was just gonna say that's uh, that's Merlot. Mm-hmm. Uh, Merlot in a nutshell from Casing Anarchy. <laughs> uh, so you know, go check out a, a Merlot, and uh, you can tell us what you think. Uh, where can they tell us what they think? They can send us an email at tastinganarchy at gmail.com. They could also tweet at us at tastinganarchy, or they could tweet at us at Childerberg, um, but probably not about tasting anarchy stuff. If you can, you know, I mean, they could, they could, and then I'll just, I guess, redirect them. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you've but, got this uh, wrong. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, that's our grape. I've got two news articles, one of which you gave me two weeks ago, and uh-huh. the other one I I found and thought was just kind of interesting um, from a, I guess, a Liberty and Wine standpoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's go ahead and play our sponsors, uh, our sponsors ad, yeah. and then and then let's get into uh, the two articles. Hi folks, Dan Reed here, the host of the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. During the show's tenure, I've spoken to celebrated authors of baking and economics. I've chatted with bakers and chefs and libertarians alike to introduce you to people who provide a mix of ideas to build your skills in the kitchen, as well as tempt your appetite toward liberty. Type culinarylibertarian.com slash podcasts into your browser search bar and subscribe on your favorite podcatcher. I look forward to hearing from you. All right. And that was uh, our sponsor, the Culinary Libertarian. Uh, I haven't listened to his last episode, but he had Michael Bolden on, which you're familiar oh, with. Yes, I am. Um, the episode before that I actually thought was very good. It was not a food-related episode. It was just mm-hmm. about uh, tactics for talking to your relatives about politics. Mm. Uh, so it was interesting. I guess he had an experience not too long ago, and it kind of uh, – they decided to sort of not talk politics online and, and to sort of avoid the topic so they could remain friends. And uh, he kind of talks a little bit about that where like, you know, sometimes things are more important than politics and it's a good idea to make sure you know where your limits are and the limits of people around you are uh, and pick your battles kind of so a good yeah. episode. Well, that's definitely uh, one of those things. It's like a lot of people, um, you know, it's you and I like, it's very hard for us to be friends with somebody who's super not the same politics as us. Yeah. When they won't just let it go. Like, right. We have no problem with people where it's like, yeah, I don't agree. Like, Oh, this is my thing. This is my thing. It's like, that's fine. But like, you can't just, you're not going to get away with just saying like, Oh, blah, blah, blah. Like some, you know, complete baloney statement and then you know we're not going to sit there and be quiet about it it's like no like this is that's bullshit <laughs> like yeah here are the here are the sixteen thousand reasons you're wrong <laughs> you know yeah well and that's kind of you know a lot of people are not receptive to that and i think that's a uh you know i've got a, a family which i'm surprised at how many people who i would consider left of me there are mm-hmm. uh because growing up my entire family, I would have considered, uh, I guess on the religious, right. Mm-hmm. And, but a lot of them, I, you know, and I'm from California, so this may have something to do with it. Like a lot of people who I thought were religious, right. Are so far on the SJW side now. And, and true believers with like COVID, for example, which listeners know how I feel about COVID already. If they've been listening for any amount of time, I don't, 
I don't understand not looking at numbers, like just being like, are, are you, I don't understand. Like <laughs> what? Like that kind of thing. So it's like one, it, it is, it was a good, it was a good thing to listen to because I'm just like, I'm just not going to engage with these people and mm-hmm. at least not on these topics, but it's, it's weird. Like in person, like I'm thinking about maybe going out and seeing my grandma in September mm-hmm. and I'm, I, I, I'm sure it's not going to be as bad as I'm preparing for myself in my head, but it's like, these are people who won't sit next to me because they are, they really believe in this COVID stuff. <laughs> and, and it's not that I don't believe in it. It's just that I'm like, you do realize that it has a 99.999997% recovery rate in my demographic and in yours. Yeah. Like I was listening to a podcast and they like offhandedly kind of tossed out that like, you know, like I go out once a day to see how like the world's doing. And like, you know, I'm one of those people wears a mask because I believe in blah, blah, blah. It's like, okay, so you don't know science or statistics because yeah. Everything like you're saying don't, is, perfect, yeah. is useless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, the thing is, like, that's not, and it, it, it's kind of. They would say the same thing to you or me, and they, and it's because, wrong or right, people have already made their minds up, and it's, and it's, it's already beyond conversation for most people. Mm-hmm. So that's true, uh, and and that's and that's that, that's the truth for most things is that. When you go out into the world, there's very few people, myself included, who are willing to be convinced of something. It's like for most topics that I'm informed on, or at least mildly informed in, uh, I've already made up my mind, or I have a, a I have a framework for my ideology, I guess, that I think is correct in how I view the world, and that's basically I'm able to construct an opinion on something from that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if COVID was killing millions of people. Uh, it wouldn't change my opinion on what's going on because my framework is already built in and it's like, I'm going to continue to live my life. And I am also not going to, you know, take dictates from the government on uh, what the appropriate response is, especially since they've made, you know, bad decisions at every single turn. So, you know, 12 days to 15 days to flatten the curve, stay in your house, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that's, you know, we're beyond that. But speaking of government's poor decisions and misunderstanding of economics, uh, we're going to go ahead and do my article before we do your article. Um, This article is titled, France will spend nearly $300 to save its wine industry. (laughs) So, uh, this is actually, this is a week old article, so things may have changed a little bit. But this is from foodandwine.com. Excuse me, I'll go ahead and uh, summarize the article. Uh, the global pandemic undermines generations of wine growers and the uh, cultural impact the wine industry has on the French on French society. Prime Minister Jean Castel or Castel C A S T E X. What? How would you say that? Castel. I I I'm so tired. Like I don't okay. know. <laughs> but yeah, no. I, <laughs> All I, right. I, yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, so that that's his name. Uh, announced that France will be increasing its support uh, its support plan to wine growing. The increase will be about two hundred and ninety four million dollars, up from about one hundred and fifty million as a result of the American tariffs. So when when the Trump administration started imposing tariffs on French wine, they uh, 
like reallocated 150 million dollars toward the French wine industry, mm-hmm. and uh, this is increasing that uh, up to 300 million dollars. So it's about doubling it. Oh. Uh, the previous 150 million was to turn excess uh, product into ethanol uh, by uh, and an additional 17 million for the private storage scheme to save 250 million bottles worth of wine from being turned into ethanol. Mm-hmm. So we actually talked about this before, I think, uh, when the tariffs first went through. And the, the what the scheme's plan is, so because of the increased tariffs, uh, France is not selling as much wine to America, and America is a huge market, particularly for for things like uh, uh, Burgundian wine. Um, so there, and also low quality, lower quality wine, wine that uh, is made for the American palate. It is not really the type of wine that most French people drink. Mm-hmm. So we, we've also discussed this before. The American palate is different than the French palate. Uh, actually, it's different than the European palate in general. Um, but we tend to like bolder fruit flavors. Uh, Americans tend to like slightly sweeter, although not as sweet as Eastern Europeans. But the 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 French style wines tend to be more on the minerally and herbal side, and that's what they prefer. Mm-hmm. So the wines that that they are not able to sell to America uh, as a result of the tariffs uh, are not really going to make a, a huge dent in the European palate. They could have sold them to Britain. Uh, they would have had to like drop the price severely though, because at this point, you know, they've already produced more than enough. I was going to say, like, and, at this point, you know, Britain's like on collapse. Yeah, exactly. So like, and everybody is too. Like that, that's the other thing is like the tariffs do hurt, but at the same time, you know, because of all the shutdowns, they've deleted like multiple trillions of dollars from the economy. And now granted, a lot of that is not, it's it's odd. I, I don't know how to describe it, but a lot of it is like on paper money. Like it's mm-hmm. it's, it's bizarre. It's going to well, be absorbed in part, but it's like it's a weird. It's it's a very weird world. But let me go ahead and finish summarizing the article, and then we'll start commenting. So the seventeen million dollars for storage that was mostly focused on uh uh. I'm trying. I'm I'm blanking on the name where they grow Pinot Noir. Um. Uh, you're way better at those French reasons than I am. Yeah, whatever. Anyways, uh, it's, it's a Chateauneuf pup. No, no, that's, that's a uh, Rhone. Um, I always associate it with Napoleon for some reason, but whatever. Anyways, that a lot of that was to save those wines because they tend to be more expensive. And if they store them, they store well and they, they expect they'll be able to sell it again later at, at the higher price. So, but the majority of that was to turn, uh, all of this wine into ethanol and then the ethanol would be used as a fuel additive. Mm-hmm. And um, so uh, the, the new money uh, will be offered uh, in multiple types of compensation. So a de- a de- more ethanol production. So in addition to the original 150 ish million dollars for ethanol production, uh, it'll be, there'll be another amount to ethanol production, which is basically they tell them if you guys produce ethanol, we'll buy the ethanol from you. Um, other types of storage. So they're going to expand their storage program to try to store the product for release at a later date. And then just uh, reduction of production. So anything that is already grown, they'll pay people just not to harvest it. Uh, and and that'll also reduce the production. Um, so people representing the French wine industry are fighting for a larger 
portion of the relief funds uh, and an estimated. So the estimates that that the wine industry in France is giving that they have lost one point seven five billion dollars uh, as a result of the COVID stuff. Uh, and this is in addition to what they already lost because of tariffs, which they say is more. Um, they need. They're saying they need over four hundred million just to stay afloat while COVID restrictions are worked out and while the economies come back online in a different way. Uh, Burgundy, that's where that's the that's the region I was thinking of. Um, so, anyways, uh, places like Burgundy and uh, places that have uh, wine that is usually designed to be stored for much longer and not drank uh, young, they want even more money for long term storage so that over time, as this wine is stored. They can put it back on the market when things recover and at a high price and kind of recover a lot of these losses. So what they're they're kind of billing this as an investment plan for their government. <laughs> and uh I mean maybe that'll work out, maybe it won't, but it's a uh it's kind of an interesting proposition, I guess. Uh, all right, so that's that's the article. Uh <laughs> what do you what do you think about this uh interesting turn of events for the the French. So this is one of those things where it's like, like as always people come up with like a problem and then it's like, okay, here's a problem. All this is happening. So what are we going to do? We're going to make the government get involved. And like, it just, it baffles me constantly. It's like, you know, people who are complaining so much about, um, like, Oh, it's like in California, like there, you know, there's a proposal for a wealth tax now and it's like 0.4% of the net worth of people over a certain amount in California, you know, it, and it's like, it's like, Oh, you know, we have a huge budget gap. It's like, yeah, but you're the ones who shut down the economy. Like, yeah. and that's the thing that drives me nuts. And like, I, you know, I think Cal, I think Florida, not Florida, but France is different than the U S because clearly, yeah. The French government, as in the na- the national government, did this. Where the U.S. federal government did not do this. Like South Dakota is just open. Yeah, and, they and, they, like, and they've actually they've had an increase in their GDP. Yeah, and it's like uh, like uh, you know Sweden, North Dakota too, barely shut down. Yeah. Same thing. Where they've had they've had an increase in their GDP as as a now. Granted, those are both very small states, but yeah. But I mean, people are going there because they can buy stuff, right? You know. So like, but that's the thing. It's like you're the ones who did this, and then like people are you know like like Democrats are freaking out because like the Republicans don't want to give states any money, and it's like and localities, but it's like you're the ones who did this. You're the ones who chose to shut these things down and not allow people to operate. So right. like why and should, with the, ex- yeah. And yeah. with the expectation that they get bailed out. Yeah. But like, that's the thing. That's what drives me nuts. It's like, it's like, you guys chose to do this. We didn't choose, choose to do this, you know? <laughs> like, right. so why should I bail out an industry that I chose not to support? Cause like, that's the, the other thing is, you know, like in Virginia, like, how I mentioned they pretty much immediately as soon as this all was coming down the pipe, were like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You can go to restaurants and get cocktails like straight from the restaurant in your car. Right. And like, you know, change everything. And they're making it easier to like do home delivery for wine and beer and stuff like that. Like they just 
literally like we're like, oh yeah, the free market's back. You know, we're not going to restrict anything. Like just literally do what you got to do. And yet here we are with the French where it's like, oh yeah, the, you know, oh, the wine's so important and everything like that. It's like, well, you guys didn't try to innovate in any way or like, you know, started like a public campaign in France to, you know, kind of be like, hey, look, you know, you guys like our wine. Like we, we got to stay in business. Please don't, you know, let us go out of business like or anything like that. It's like, no, immediately we need, you know, a billion dollars. Well, and you know what's interesting about that is that's something I thought about as well. And then I had kind of some other thoughts on it. Um, now, granted, I, I agree with you uh, entirely, but I think one of the things that I think is very interesting about European wine industry in general is how um, complicated it already is mm-hmm. with government. So I, I don't – hang on just a second. Sure. One, one, one second. Sorry, Victoria is making a bunch of noise. <laughs> yeah, that was one of the dogs um, just clicking around, like click, click, click. No, click, it's, click. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. She's like right, right there, and I, she can hear me talking. Anyways, um, I think she has her headphones on, and it's just not paying attention. But anyways, hmm. uh, what, what I kind of going back to what I was saying is, I don't know how easy it is for anybody to be able to go like, hey, my vineyard is in peril buy my wine because they're the system is so oddly layered there mm-hmm. that's that true it's it's like first of all a lot of vineyards are not owned individually they're co-ops so they're owned by a whole bunch of different people who just work the land and have for generations and then in addition to that they're not the winemakers they then sell the wine to negotiation or they or they do the initial fermentation and then they sell it to a negotiation who then blends the wine and then sells it and a lot of this stuff is in place by law. So it's not like a lot of the individual – and not, this is not true for the entire place, but and, and sometimes it's more true than in other places. But in some places, it may not be clear who is getting hurt by this or if they should have been in the wine industry still anyways because of mm-hmm. uh, economic forces. I mean, it, this the, the system in Europe is very complicated – compared to you know the new world the united states in particular where in the united states it's pretty much the guy who owns the land makes makes the grapes and a lot of times he also makes the wine but sometimes he sells the grapes to somebody else who makes it and it's kind of clear where who needs the money who's getting the money that sort of thing so they can do different things like hey get your wine to go from us because if you want us to stay open we need uh, we need to stay open mm-hmm. or they can do a, a gofundme or something like that whereas in europe it's it's not always clear Who's in trouble? It's it's also it's probably not even clear a lot of times to the farmers who's in trouble because they're not exactly employed by the government, but it's a it's like a regional co-op initiative that is locally controlled by a some sort of governmental authority. Yeah, it's it's like, very hard to tell like who's in charge and yeah. like who's who benefits and who doesn't yeah and I, I see what you mean like it it's a much harder system to be like yeah hey we need help you know like right yeah I mean, it's like if, if rowdy needed if rowdy was was hurting because of COVID, and he actually was and i ordered some bottles of wine from him uh just to tr- sort of make sure that he was doing okay and and i'm i haven't lost any work or anything so i'm still doing okay myself but um 
he posted online, Hey, we're, we're doing wine sales online. You know, we, we had to shut down our newly opened tasting room. So please order or whatever. So I was like, you know, what? I'll order a couple bottles because I like him and I like his wine. And, uh, he was nice enough to come on our show and, and do mm-hmm. an interview. And I went out and helped harvest with him and yeah. he's just a great guy in general. So I ordered from him. I ordered from a couple of other wineries that put stuff up online here in Texas and got a couple of bottles from them. Uh, it's a little bit hot for things to be shipped right now, but everything actually <laughs> arrived okay. Uh, and I was able to get it off the curb like right away and put it, you know, in the, uh, the little, the, my little bar. Uh, but anyways, it's, it's easier for that kind of thing to happen in, in the United States, I think, because it doesn't have that very strict and rigid, uh, system that, mm-hmm. that Europe has. And, and, and on the one hand, you know, that, that strict and rigid system does kind of like to, I guess, to play devil's advocate a little bit, it does make very clear what the wine is and where it's from because they do things based off of region, not based off of grape. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we do that a little bit here, but it's not as important. It's more, it's more based on the specific winery and the, and the more general region than it is, you know, specifically Cadillac of Bordeaux, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. It's, it's more of, it's, it's less very, very specific regions and more of kind of a general, you know, this general area. I mean, like Texas High Plains is the size of a lot of countries in Europe. It's huge. Yeah. And, and, and that's the thing is like a lot of states are doing like weird initiatives here. So, yeah. you know, we, we kind of are like poo-pooing like what the French are doing because they're spending a lot of money, but it's not like the local states and stuff like that aren't also doing something. Right. And actually, and you know, on the on the note, what you're talking about with the wealth tax, that's one of the topics for my next episode of my new podcast, mm, yeah, um, Calif- the Californian in Exile. That was one of the articles I was actually going to read about, but I was going to kind of juxtapose it to another article, and I'll just kind of give a little a little taste here. Is uh, recently Cuomo was uh, in New York, which is a totally different state than California. Uh, was I wouldn't say begging exactly, but he was saying basically. Rich people, we need you to come back to New York. Yeah, it's like when this is and over, don't like, not come back. Yeah, exactly. Like we need the money, and and he's like, I'll I'll buy you a beer if you come back, and like you know all that kind of stuff. And it's and it's the reason I was going to juxtapose that to the California wealth tax is one of the reasons people are leaving New York is because of the COVID restrictions, but also because it's if you're rich and you live in a place that is going to tax you that much, you just don't want to live there anymore. You know mm-hmm. where you know over the last five years where five hundred thousand Californians have moved, Texas. Exactly, they moved to Texas, and you know I think a hundred and something thousand in Nevada. Um, basically, places where they don't they don't tax as much. And now I would like I would like to believe that in the consciousness of these people, they're going. I don't like being taxed. I'm going to move to this other place where there's lower taxes, and I'm not going to change it. We'll see what happens. But, <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> people, people don't always make that connection in their mind, which is unfortunate, but, uh, there is a, there's, if, if California really, you know, had a, had this, you know, budget shortfall and, and Gavin Newsom, and you know what, I'm not going to stay on this topic too much because it is something I wanted to talk about on, on the other show. Um, I'll go ahead and plug my other show real quick. It's, it's not, it's not out yet because I'm still trying to make, um, wow, that was a loud thunder. Uh, I'm oh, still trying thunder? to make, oh. 
Yeah, that was Thunder. Yeah. Uh, I'm still trying to work out the issues with my song and stuff like that. But I had one episode out briefly. I think you heard it uh, a couple of well, times. I have, yeah, I have it. it was like cold. I got about halfway through it. Okay, yeah. So the, the idea of the show is I'm a Californian. I live in Texas. Uh, a lot of people are Californians that live outside of California. Some people still live in California, and I thought it would be kind of interesting to go over uh, a lot of the news articles that are short, sort of shaping people's uh, opinions about living in California and uh, and then just kind of sharing some general memories of the places that I love in California. And one of the reasons why whenever I get together with anybody, I always talk about California. Whenever you, your <laughs> wife and I get together, we're always talking about California. Probably when I'm not there, she's always talking about California. It's, uh, I mean, it's like, one of those places where, uh, I mean, and probably and Texas is this way too. Like I know a lot of Texans are always talking about Texas. Uh, mm-hmm. And I like it here. It's nice, but it's it's like one of those states where if you're from there, you're from there, and everybody knows you're from there. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Like, anyways, well, I mean to be like 100 honest, like Ashley and I have, you know, like I'm seriously looking at like moving to Eureka in California. Eureka or Eureka? Eureka. Oh, okay. Yeah. The both yeah, both like, are great. I love Eureka and I love Eureka. Yeah, I've I've never been there, but like you know, it it looks like the Pacific Northwest. It's near big, the big trees. Like it's just a cool looking place. It is um, really cool. And, and that's there. The, you can get involved in the uh, Jefferson movement. Yeah, and that that's kind of the thing is like you know, I I have a very low like I don't dislike here. Like there's a lot of good things about Virginia and. Like there's a lot of stuff to see in the state. Like the beaches aren't bad. Like, I mean, they're not California beaches, but they're also warm. They're not. Well, I mean, if you beaches, live in Eureka, that's not a. Uh, no, agreed. <laughs> no, agreed. What's that? I know. Yeah. I'm, I'm saying I agree. And I understand that, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's not like my wife has so many memories of just walk, you know, like her dad and her going camping and, you know, going camping in the mountains of California and, you know, like they're, fire season like there's there's a lot of stuff like where it could be bad to do that you know but mm. here but you know what it, it is it's so different you're probably going to make this point it is so different living in california and the camping than living in virginia and the camping. Mm-hmm. It, i don't i don't i don't know how else to describe it it's just it's easier in general to go camping in california yeah it's just it's a cooler environment in gen- like yeah california is it's just pleasant i understand that yeah but like it isn't the humidity that you have here, which is just another level of uncomfortable heat. Um, and you know, I get it. Like I, I don't have a huge, like, I don't have a huge, uh, like, you know, like, Oh, Virginia is like, just like everything, you know, like I don't talk about Virginia everywhere I go. Like, well, everybody else does that, like that you was, guys do with yeah. California. Well, and, I think that's, uh, I think that was, yeah, that was kind of the point I was making is I don't know what it is about people from California and people from Texas. There's a few other places that are like that too. Colorado's kind of like that where if you're from one of those places, that's all you talk about. Mm-hmm. And I, and I'm not entirely sure why, but like I haven't lived in California in 15 years and I still talk about it all the time. Yeah, Actually I haven't lived in California in how old am I? 33. Yep. 15, 16, 17. I haven't talked about California in 18 years. Or I haven't, I haven't lived, lived in California, California in 18 years. Yeah. <laughs> you talk about California yeah, I, every day. 
<laughs> right. But yeah, I talk about it all the time. And and that's kind of how what inspired the show is I was mm-hmm. you know, talking Victoria's ear off about it. She's like, you should just start talking about that on a podcast or something. Yeah. And and I was like, yeah, you're right. I should. And uh, and 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 a lot of it's too like history of California, songs that come from California, uh, songs about California, the gold rush. <laughs> you know, ex- <laughs> you know, we talk about it all the time here. Wine, like uh, you know, logging, nuclear power comes up all the time, and I complain about California. It's it's just it's it's the topics. It's all all the topics around my life, and I haven't lived there in nearly eighteen years, more than half my life. Yeah, and uh, I mean, actually, and the whole reason we moved. The, the number one reason we moved to Texas was to be closer to California, <laughs> but not in California. Yeah. So like, it was just, it's like one of those weird things that it's like, it is a force in people who are from there and people are not from there. I mean, you lived there, what, nine months, uh, three, something like that. Yeah. Oh, only three. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah and it's, and it's kind of a pooling force for you. I mean, now granted your wife is from there, but yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a pooling force for you as well. So it's like one of those things, like I understand part of the reason part of like people's affinity for it is um, what allows their government to do what it can do. Mm-hmm. Like I think, I think in places that were, would be like a lot places like Alabama, they just couldn't do it because people would just be like, fuck this. I'm leaving. Alabama sucks anyways. Yeah. And you know, not to, not to offend anybody from Alabama. I mean, I'm sure people like it down there and for good reasons, I'm sure. But like, it's, there's too many detractors from places like that, that if they did try to go and do a lot of the stuff that California does, people just leave. Mm-hmm. But in California, like there are all these, it's like, a, it's what's a name? Stapleton says, it, it's a paradise tax. Yeah. It's like, there is so much good that's there. People are willing to pay a lot of money to stay. Yeah. And that's, you know, kind of the thing that I'm looking at. It's like, you know, I could live in California. Like it, it's just, yeah. Like I want to live in San Diego and I, it's going to be a while before I could theoretically afford to do that. And like, I also like the idea of a small town, but like, there's a lot that keeps me here. So like, you know, it's hard. So it is, it is a hard choice. So let's go ahead. And and, uh, if you guys want to hear more about me rambling about California and possibly possibly guests, possibly. Yep. Yep. Possibly with your wife, possibly with you at some point. Um, Check out the Californian. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Check out the Californian and exile podcast. Uh, I'm going to try to make it a weekly show. Uh, I'm trying to keep it under 30 minutes per episode of just kind of a couple of news articles, a little bit of nostalgia, and then moving on. If I have a guest, I'm probably not going to do any news articles. It's just going to be a guest talking about the state and uh, the state we love and why we love it. Uh, Let's go ahead. And we've got about, six or seven minutes left on mm-hmm. this. Uh, let's go ahead and wrap up with the article you sent me, yeah. which I think is a good article. And I really want to go into it because it also ties into our other article. Uh, this article is from zero hedge. It was by Tyler Durden, who uh, I guess is the publisher of zero hedge. I know it's, I know it's a fake name, but um, well, it's, it's multiple people. It's just the, okay. It's just the, uh, the writers there. Um, okay. that, like, when right. They do something. They, they just post it under that. Okay, so it's called uh, Champagne Sales Fizzle, Worse Than the Great Depression. Uh, I'll go ahead and summarize the article. So with COVID lockdowns and all the canceled events that typically involve champagne, champagne sales have dramatically dropped. Producers of champagne uh, in the Champagne region of France are reporting an estimated $2 billion loss in sales just this year. Uh, reporting the worst selling conditions since the Great Depression, uh, as 
okay, I, I did not actually say what this organization uh, name actually is. I just put the abbreviation. So it says, as a result of the CIVC, uh, as a result, comma, the CIVC will be placing a harvest cap to reduce the production of champagne and avoid price collapse. So this that's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, small winemakers are worried by the caps because they are more vulnerable to output declines than large wineries. Uh, they have to okay. So here's their kind of points about about theirs is uh, they have to pay for the uh, their harvest above the cap to be destroyed. Um, so if so, basically they're not going to just stop harvesting. They're going to harvest everything and then and then break it break it apart and destroy what is not um, going to be turned into champagne. Uh, and then small producers are saying they have never experienced a one third fall in sales even during the world wars. So this is like a drastic drop in production. And that's what they're asking for these harvest declines. Uh, many pr- producers uh, are concerned that the COVID induced downturn could damage the industry for years to come uh, with potential permanent reduction in large celebrations. The industry must shift their production to uh, more everyday wine. So a lot of these places that used to produce champagne, are thinking of maybe going and producing other types of still wines. Uh, and then the decline and uncertainty of government reaction to COVID will likely result in a bankruptcy wave among winemakers. That's their uh, worry. So what I thought was interesting about this is they're citing a $2 billion loss just in their region. Mm-hmm. In the other article, they are estimating a $1.75 billion reduction in the entire France. I'm not really sure about the the discrepancy there in losses. I thought that was, I thought that was just interesting. Something I caught when I was reading both these articles. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I think this will be, this is kind of interesting. So there's a couple of things that play into this, assuming that uh, global warming is real and, and that, and we have actually, you know, I'm a little bit more sympathetic to that argument than I used to be uh, because I have seen the change since you and I started the show a change in the types of grapes being grown. And it does seem like grapes are being grown further North. And you've got, I've gone over this a little bit. It could be a technology shift. It could be better uh, genetic variants of these grapes. It could be a lot of things that are, that are changing the grape growing, but it does seem like further and further North, they're able to grow more grapes. One of the reasons champagne exists. I mean, it is a, it, for, for many years, it was only an export market. People in France didn't really drink it. Mm-hmm. And uh, the reason being that bubbles used to be considered a fault in wine. A, a, a still wine was what they were after, but because of English glass blowing technology to make those thicker bottles that can hold the carbonation and um, the widow, what's her name? I can't remember what her name is uh, inventing that riddling technique. They were able to uh, basically make bubbly wine for export. And that's one of the reasons why this is such a huge damage to the Champagne uh, region's production because it's become synonymous with um, celebration outside of France. I, I think mm-hmm. they do it a little bit in France, but British and American culture is so hardcore on sparkling wine and in particular Champagne because it's a sign of luxury and we're just not celebrating anymore. We don't, we don't have gatherings. We don't do the things that typically involve lots of champagne there. The weddings have been cut. 
uh, births have been births. I guess you don't do that as much, but like different types of parties that involve a lot of champagne, especially higher end champagne are just, they don't exist anymore. They've all been canceled. And, uh, so champagne sales are just gone. Also bars are closed. All of the drinks that, that, uh, involve champagne. Mimosas, being mixed in yeah. It. yeah. All that stuff. That's all gone. And so this is a huge, huge, um, hit to their very specialized market. Uh, it's not like the other parts of France where people do drink the wines locally for the most part. Uh, and then there is a different type or some of the wine is reserved for export. Uh, but this is more of, this is an export market, kind of like Bordeaux is the same way. It's, it's largely an export market. And because there's no exports, also there's already tariffs on French wines. This is, um, very, very difficult for them. And I say, wasn't uh, they're get, like specifically exempted from that originally? I think it was originally. I think that that was like part of the original Trump tariffs, but the tariffs have changed. And actually, I don't think we've covered it. The tariffs have increased actually since mm-hmm. uh, the original tariffs were in place. And a- as a result of different posturing between our governments, uh, and which is interesting, like the French decided to go forward with some of the tech tariffs that they were going to put on American companies. And so Trump increased the tariffs on their products, which most of their products that they export to us are luxury goods like wine and um, different types of fashion items and stuff like that. Uh, and and what's interesting about the way that these tariffs are uh, being laid out is they are very, very specifically designed to favor one European Union country over another. So in particular, Italy is exempt from like all of these wine tariffs <laughs> and uh, which is bizarre, but also it's, I, this is my guess is that this is, these are, these tariffs are designed to foster hostility between European nations. And uh, that's my conspiracy. At least I, uh, they already don't get along very well. <laughs> and that's what it seems like to me is that these are kind of designed to sort of start some infighting. Yeah, that is that is uh, very interesting. Yeah, yeah, it, it is interesting. But uh, I am not really a sparkling wine drinker. I thought this article was very interesting, and you sent it to me, and it was like right on the heels of me sending you some sparkling wine. Yeah, and uh, I am a sparkling now, wine drinker. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you do. You and your wife both. You guys do mimosas and things like that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I just I've never California champagne. So okay, well. That's that's another point of contention. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the the French hate the, the French hate that California does say uh, does call some of their sparkling wine champagne, or it doesn't you know the U.S. doesn't enforce their trademark or whatever they right yeah for. exactly yeah because yeah. yeah the U.S. doesn't recognize that as a uh, enforceable trademark mm-hmm. uh, since it's a region thing. But uh, so I don't really have much more to say about this article because it's basically the same things I said about the previous article. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you do? You have any sort of, I guess, hypothesis of what's going to happen in the future? I mean, it does sort of show a, a, a bit of the delicacy in building your entire market. Well, not your entire market, but a very large portion of your production for export. Well, on the I, one hand, that's that's, that's a great. It, yeah, go ahead. So, like, I have a couple points that I'm going to try to make as short as possible. So, this is like one of those classic examples of like why like central planning doesn't work right like oh you're you you guys suck and we hate you so you're gonna have to make champagne which no one wants so we can sell to the british to bring in pounds 
for export dollars, but we're not going to let you make French wine, like stuff that your actual customers would want. Okay. So then they end up doing that. And then in my personal opinion, it's like, this is all like the chickens coming home to roost based on the manipulation that the fed has been doing and like basically making all this funny money. And I personally feel like this crashing of the economy is just their way to pull that money out of existence. It's just basically like, okay, okay, nobody's got to repay anything. We're, it's just done. You know what I mean? Like they're just going to collapse the economy, um, have all these bankruptcies happen at the lower levels. And that's going to be like how they wash all that stuff, all that extra money out of the system. Yeah, and that and that's a strong possibility. And what we've seen, this is something that I'm I'm curious to see what happens in France over the next couple of years. Is pr- in the '90s, you we actually did see quite a bit of sales of French vineyards uh, to American corporations, mm-hmm. uh, large wine wine producers uh, from America. And what we've been seeing over the last couple of years through the most recent inflationary bubble um, was large portions of French wine growing regions being purchased by the Chinese. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so whoever comes out of this economic downturn uh, ahead, I guess, I think that's what we're going to be seeing purchasing up uh, vineyards in France because it is a uh, a status symbol. To be able to produce your own French wine from your own vineyard is a pretty big deal. And, and we see this actually in, in um, Napa and Sonoma and uh, some of the other areas in in the wine country of, of California where it used to be very serious wine country. And and it still is uh, to a large degree, but you do see a lot of the inflationary profit. Like this is not the right way to put it, but the, the people who became ridiculously wealthy from like IPOs and stuff in companies that are making zero money in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. So like these companies that have never turned a profit and yet the people who started these companies walk away multi-billionaires and, uh, or and then people on the lower end of that who walk away with you know hundreds of millions of dollars, and they want a status symbol because now they are new wealth, and they and and you see a, a huge rash of this all over California where they purchase a vanity project and the vanity project is a winery, mm-hmm. and or vineyard and and it's really interesting to see and we saw this in the last. Um, Really, a lot of it was coming to fruition in the last couple of years, which is interesting. And I, and I wonder now if maybe we can start making a correlation between the the bubble coming to burst uh, this last year, which does seem to be related to COVID, but may have happened anyways because um, Q4 2019 GO was already down. So we, it looked like we were entering recession anyways. But mm-hmm. um, that aside uh, – we started seeing a lot of these new money people who bought these vineyards as vanity projects cashing out. Mm-hmm. And and then a lot of new generation of winemakers who were more serious about it coming in and either purchasing portions of the prod property or coming from families that already were producing wine somewhere else successfully coming in and, and starting a new project. And there's a lot of new brands coming out of that part of California, in particular, um, Santa Rita Hills, which is a very, very small uh, appellation in California, uh, very famous for producing Pinot Noir. There was a lot of people who had bought up large swaths of land um, post-2008 when they had made a lot of tech money. And then around 2000. 
2015, 2016, 2017, they started realizing that money wasn't going to last them mm-hmm. and selling and selling these properties. And a lot of them at a loss, actually. And over those couple of years, the property was purchased at, at a discount a lot of times and became more serious producers. And a lot of times they had to tear out the vines that were put in. They were not put in good spots. They weren't put in in, in good rows and stuff like that. And the grapes really need to be taken down to a large degree. And I, and I think that that's going to be interesting to watch over the next, you know, if, if people like uh, Gene Epstein are correct, we're going to have another 10 year cycle of, of quote unquote prosperity where a lot of people are going to make a lot of this new money. And the, and it's really whoever gets the money first, that's who really profits from it. And so we're gonna have another 10 year cycle of people doing more things that are going to continue to distort the economy. And I wonder what that's going to look like in the wine industry. Are we going to see you know, the Chinese come in and buy up even more or are the Chinese done. And now we're going to see somebody else because there, there's a lot of posturing going on right now. Like the Australians sort of pulled back from, they, they were really friendly with China and they're actually, their wine industry was very heavily tied in China. But now you start seeing that they're kind of pulling back and they're kind of going like, eh, we're, we're going to kind of maybe focus more on India mm-hmm. and the United States, same thing that that also could be Australia is getting pressure from the United States. Uh, it, it's a very weird time. You also see China, and and Pakistan posturing against India, so like there do, does seem to be lines being drawn, and I, you know, I obviously don't really see a hot war ever developing, but I do see, uh, like you were saying, these economic chickens coming home to roost. Is the United States going to continue to be able to kick the can down the road, or is it somebody else's turn to kick the can down the road? And kind of the United States will be on the losing end of this, and we'll, and we'll see, we'll see what happens. And I think it's going to be reflected in the wine industry because. The, the wine industry is a really good reflection of what's going on in the overall economy. It's, you know, if the Chinese come out on top, we'll see a very large shift of producers to producing for the Chinese palate, sweeter wines and um, more bulk wine in luxury looking bottles and stuff like that. But you're also going to see Chinese investors coming up and buying very large portions of land in California and France if, if they end up coming out on top. If the United States comes out on top, maybe we'll see something more along the lines of what was happening in the 90s and early 2000s when United States investors were coming in buying large portions of France. So, mm-hmm. But also depends on what the European Union does. So yeah. I guess uh, this will be an interesting ride for the Tasting Anarchy podcast. It is going to be. All right. Uh, that's all I got. You got anything else you want to add? No, that's it. All right. All right, everybody. Stay free. Stay free.